Before you dive into this exciting episode, I'd like to let you know about the Squash Playbook, your tactical blueprint for success. The playbook is written based on the most common solutions I have given to the people I coach over the last 20 years. It is the ultimate how-to guide for any squash fan, and you can grab a free copy right away by visiting squashplaybook.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. Are you freaked out by that hard-hitting hacker? Frustrated with running out of ideas against the relentless retriever? Want to close out matches more clinically when in the lead? Or do you need some mental tools to overcome bad calls by referees? These answers plus many more have been brought together all in one place for the squash community. The Squash Playbook is a practical toolkit that breaks down over 40 scenarios that are most commonly faced on the court. Each scenario provides the psychology and the strategy needed to get a positive result. Each chapter wraps up with the top six key points to keep things simple and practical. The aim of the book is to transform reactive players into proactive tacticians. I focus on breaking down complex situations into straightforward, effective strategies for those high pressure moments in a match. So why not grab your copy now and step onto the court next time with a clear head and a set of strategies to win those matches you know you're capable of. Please enjoy the show. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How you doing, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls? Hope everyone is well and hope you are getting a little bit of positivity and thought-provoking ideas from these podcasts. So I'd like to welcome a good friend of mine to the next episode of the Squash Mind podcast series, Lee Drew. I've been lucky enough to know Lee for several years now, knew him a little bit as a player, but got a lot closer to him in regard to coaching and we went through very similar journeys together, going through the High Performance Award with England Squash and the University of Gloucester. And subsequently, we've spent a lot of time together, shared some ideas, been on similar coaching courses and coaching events together. So it's a real treat for me to sit down with Lee and really take a deep dive into some of his coaching philosophies. And whenever I do spend time with Lee, I come away feeling really inspired myself. I feel I've got a bit more of a thought process. I question a little bit of things I'm doing and I want to add and iterate to what I I currently am working on. So hopefully I think you'll find this chat really insightful between myself and Lee Drew. And those of you who don't know who Lee is, he is currently the England national junior coach. So really working and nurturing those top level players and next generation of English juniors. He also works with a, a few of the seniors and a few of the pros as well. But his main role is the England national junior coach. 
You also will be familiar with Lee in regard to the PSA commentating, and he's at all the major events doing a lot of great work there. He's also a PSA refereeing director as well, so he's really embedded in the whole PSA landscape. And we talk about how this is for him and how he uses the PSA as his, I suppose, his yardstick to be able to investigate the game, to see what athletes are doing, seeing what the players are working on, and then use this and distill this within his coaching. So part of me is a little bit jealous there that he's able to get so much great access to the players. But you know what, having this chat and really taking things away from it has been really insightful for me. Lee was a great player back in his day, reaching 45 in the world, and I think he talks a lot about that he didn't feel he fulfilled his potential, and he only really got into his main potential later on in his career, and and the realization about this. So I think young athletes that are listening to this can maybe take something from that, and and how he honestly says he wasted quite a few years of his life, and, and, and very open in regard to this. But what we do is we take quite a deep dive into visualizations. I wanted, I wanted to hear his view on it and, and where he sits with visualizations. Also around signs of mentally tough athletes and what he uses as his benchmarks or the things he looks for in regard to what mentally tough athletes exhibit. We also take a bit of a look at game plans and the mental state about going into a match and also how to get his players to think for themselves. As always, I think we take a deep dive and look at a wide-ranging variation of topics in regard to the mind, and it's just my curious mind ticking over, and to be able to sit for over an hour with someone like Lee, who is a, a really deep thinker, is very broad in what he reads and what he investigates, and he has massively influenced me along my way around reading and topics and philosophies and coaching ideas. So please enjoy this next episode with myself and Lee Drew. Lee Drew, welcome to the next episode of the Quash Mind podcast series. How are you keeping? Uh, not bad, not bad. It's certainly been um, a challenging time and and a different phase for for everyone. There's a lot, a lot of adaption been going on. That's that's for sure. But um, I, I guess I'd say that I'm I'm quite lucky in what I do, and and as much as I need to remind myself sometimes of that. Uh, I'm okay. Thanks, mate. You? Yeah, no, good, man. Uh, yeah, listen, it's weird. Like we, we were speaking a lot before lockdown and stuff and, you know, we crossed paths quite a bit and actually, you know, we haven't touched base during it. So it seemed like it was appropriate. I know you're a, you're a, you're a deep thinker about the game and, and whenever I've spent time with you in, in, in camps or some England stuff, I've always come away feeling quite inspired. So yeah, thanks for the opportunity, man. I, and, and I'm sure like our chat will take a few cool uh, diversions <laughs> as we go, but yeah, listen. I mean, the, the viewers will have to excuse us if we go off on a tangent <laughs> just to, to catch up as you're right. We haven't caught up for a while so true i think there could be some of that coming in there but um listen lee you're one of the busiest men i know you know you wear so many different hats you're continually pushing yourself to strive for better and more within the game so i massively admire this and and whenever i see what you're doing it's, it's motivation for myself and um so i think a good place to start is to give a bit of a brief background uh to your professional playing career but also to bring the listeners up to speed where you are now at this point of your journey yeah, I mean, I mean, you're right. There's a there's there's a lot there. Um, obviously, you know, I think sometimes maybe I push push a bit too much, and and that can be one of my my faults as well. But um, uh, in terms of of playing career, obviously, I've I've played right the way through the juniors, um, through to to turning professional. Um, I think my my professional days has helped shape and mould my my coaching time now and where I'm at 
you know, at this stage of my my career of my life. Um, in terms of actually playing, it was um, it was quite frustrating, really, because I probably thought I was working quite hard. Um, I thought I knew what I needed to do. Um, didn't necessarily have the guidance at certain points that were, that were very important, you know, junctions in time um, until later on. And and it was quite interesting because I spent a big chunk after my junior career where I did well initially mm-hmm. and then got injured and then it sort of all all backed off a bit and and had maybe four or five years that were really, really frustrating, you know, where, where people would say you should be ranked higher, you should be doing this. And I mean, I was I was up and down uh, like a like a yo-yo yeah um and and it, it was difficult and you know I thought I was doing the right things and I clearly I clearly wasn't I you know I wasn't dedicated in the way I needed to be um I didn't get those things right but I think those frustrations have actually helped me with with my coaching and and to, to sort of help to well, help other players, I guess. Um, and it wasn't until probably when I was about 26 that I actually decided or worked out and got information and learned more and actually then started to understand what I needed a bit more and, and where I was with my game and my identity and how I wanted to play and how, how I needed to train and all those sort of th- things. So it probably wasn't until I was about 30, when, which was actually close to when I stopped, mm. um, where I was playing my best squash. Um, and then I then I was back in love with the game and and th- think of it very fondly. So um, I, I got to 45 in the world. Uh, I had good wins against against very high ranked players, but I quite often followed them up with a shocker. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I was I was I was very up and down. I, I had to spend a lot of time searching for answers, for searching for information, mm. um, trying to trying to get that knowledge. And um, well, which is one thing that comes to mind. Sorry to stop you and flow there. Yeah, but no, I remember. I remember. Was it the Wolverhampton tournament? Was your last one? I think I was at that one, and and I just yeah. remember seeing you. Uh, and you can tell us what, what what happened. But I think you either one got to final. But you looked like you just the weight of the world was off your shoulders. You were playing with absolute freedom. It was actually a joy to watch you that tournament. Can you? reflect on that yeah I mean yeah and that and that last sort of six months of of that season was was just like that basically and it was it was when I stopped and I had to I had to qualify for that event and I was I was relaxed and but I I just found where I was at with my Mm -hmm. with my game and I was just playing way better I lost in the final to Borja Golan in the end um, it was probably one match too many, but um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, right the way through that, the Wolverhampton was a, was a great tournament to me. Got to a final. Um, mm-hmm. I, qual- I was qualifying for the the sort of the world tour um, tournaments. The, you know, the the platinum, the equivalent of the platinum events. I was getting through and pushing pushing players in those. So it, it's a shame, you know, that, that yeah. I did decide that that was the right time to stop. But I also thought. Um, come on, mate! You've wasted ten years of of your career already. You've had you've had a fair old <laughs> chunk to get this right, and it's taken you ages to get it right. And that's just one of those things. But what it did mean is that when I left the game, I had very fond memories of enjoying playing nice. um, and actually expressing myself on a squash court. And and it made up for you know the the period of time that I did actually waste that you don't realise you're wasting at the time. <laughs> So what, what, what was happening mentally then in that last six months? What, what did you come to the realisation in, in your mind that, that allowed you to play so well? Well, I mean, one of the main things was that I'd, I'd, I'd got a decent work ethic. 
So I actually, um, I remember, I remember it was quite clear. We got, so in the PSL, we got to the final of it. Um, I was playing for Lexton, which was my home club as well. And we went down to, to Wembley, or no, to Lambs and, and played. And I played Alistair Walker and I was, I don't know, I was probably too love match ball up or something. And, and I, I managed to, to clutch defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> oh, which, wow. um, and, and to be fair, I mean, Ali made himself very hard to beat and, and was good. But I mean, it blew my head up at the time. And I remember walking off the court. And as I walked off the court, I jabbed my foot at the door, basically kicked the door. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually broke my toe. Wow. <laughs> um, and it was only, I mean, a kick of the door to try and open it, to get it to, to spring back and go out. But I actually broke my toe. And um, it was that time. And I, I remember getting off the train uh, when I got home and I was hobbling and I couldn't walk and what have you. Um, but it gave me a phase to sort of think, what are you doing? Right. And to really look at myself with that. And then, and then I went off and, and found, um, you know, coaches to, to help me. And the first port of call was, was a work ethic. So I actually got a good physical base within me. And then the next bit was the squash. And I, I went up to Pontefract and spent quite a bit of time with James and Malcolm and those guys up there. Um, Lee Beach was up there at the time. And I'd, I'd travel up there once a week. And that then helped me to, to get the identity of my, my game and my squash right. So that, that was sort of the main differences. And then by the time it came to that last season, I hadn't actually decided I was going to stop mm-hmm. um, at that point. So it wasn't that that had relaxed me. It was just I was in a much better place in terms of I had a bit of a foundation, which gives mm-hmm. you confidence. Mm-hmm. And then I also understood my squash a lot more. So then I, I started to understand, you know, where I win points, where I apply pressure Um how to actually play and enjoy playing rather than just beating yourself up and, and, and actually just be able to appreciate what someone else is doing on a squash court. You know, when they put good rallies together, good performances, just looking at them, wow, that, that was good. And, okay. it, you know, the whole thing just sort of worked together to be a lot more enjoyable and a lot more uh, effective. Yeah, I, I like that. I like it. You said that you, you almost look like, and I remember I hear you coach where you talk about the camera lens zooming in and out and it sounds like you'd zoomed out a little bit and were appreciating mm. others and how to construct that. And do you think that was down to Malcolm and that environment up in Pontefract? Or would you say that was the, the big turning point? Well, I mean, that, that sort of side of it, it definitely relaxed me probably. You know, it helped me to, to think about areas of the court a bit more, to, to have that, you know, my technique was was okay, it was fine, and my ball control was, was fine. So it wasn't that necessarily. It was more where to hit the ball, to hit the spaces, and then the way of thinking about the game for sure. And and it just it just suited my personality at the time, and it, it just yeah. helped me to get through that point. I think, and it it became way more enjoyable. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the thing I'm getting from these chats is is obviously different points in the career. You 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 hear something or, or something really clicks with your character, that part of your life or your career. You know, you could tell a, a 21-year-old to do loads of visualizations and it's beneficial for them, but they they might do it. But when they hear that at 25, 26, it might really hit the mark a lot more. Uh, have mm. you found that in your in your coaching and 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 you know that 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 idea of, of different times of different athletes' careers, how you can get your point across? Yeah, well, I just think everyone is so individual. Um, so I think people are ready at different times. Like for me, you know, what, I started getting ready at 26 or something. And unfortunately, in terms of professional squash, 
that was way, way too late. I ran out of time. Mm -hmm. Now you get other individuals, you know, whether it's a, a Nick Matthew, a Laura Massaro, a James Wilstrop, who know very, very early on what they want to do. And, and they, are, they know early enough and they're, they're mature enough to actually be able to do what they need to do you know, be dedicated enough to apply themselves um, to be able to do it. Some people, you know, like I just don't think I was psychologically ready at that point when I was younger to be able to achieve what was, or to do what was needed to do, be done consistently to yeah. become that good. So I think when you, when you see and work with people, people are ready for different things at different times. So you can have those conversations with them. And I, I see it as just a case of you just chip away so you just keep chipping away with stuff um, mm -hmm. without forcing it. You know, you throw in little conversations, you throw in little bits of information, you you provide the the ability to, to have access to something mm -hmm. and you keep chipping away. And when someone's ready, they grab it. And then when they're not ready, you might see very small improvements or you might not see any improvements, um, but you keep providing that information. And in the end, they grab it or they don't. Um, and people do it at different points and you know what it's like as well with with coaching and with with people it's sometimes it's about it might be that you've been saying to someone for ages about something then they go away and they go off to a squad or they go to a tournament or there's another player and someone says exactly the same thing in a slightly different way and it's like this eureka moment and you're like well I've been saying that to you for so long but but actually it just needs the confirmation from someone else or it to be said in a slightly different way. So I, I very much see it as providing information, mm -hmm. chipping away at it without forcing it and, and then allowing, you know, in the end, it's that journey, isn't it? A player goes from being given a lot of information to them actually leading it and coming to you and, and leading the discussions with what they want to do, how they want to do it. And that's, that's that chipping away process, which can be ridiculously frustrating sometimes. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. And, and you know, as, as a coach, you hear that and you, like you said, you go, oh, I've been telling that for years. But so part of you is a little bit frustrated, but part of you is also happy because your players got it. So I think it's getting that balance right. And, and similarly, someone who's been working with another coach for 10 years comes to you for a squad and you say that one thing. And it and it gives them that light bulb moment. But that mm. um, that leads me on to my next little bit, which is which is around what you currently do. So so you retired, and then like I said, you 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 wear so many different hats, and it's amazing. Mm. And we went on the master's journey together a little bit. So talk to me about all those other aspects of your life that you work on, and you you try better yourself, and you're cultivating your own person and 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 where you want to go, and how that also folds into your coaching a little bit. Yeah, so I mean, I think you know the the professional career, my playing career, has left a void because I don't see it as a success. So that's left a a hunger there, and I guess maybe whereas I've gotten more mature, I now have that that want to do as well as I can to be the as good as I can possibly be to learn more. So I've, I've suddenly developed this love of learning, this love of, love of development. I think so. Um, I will watch things, I'll read things, um, I'll try and develop and enhance my knowledge. And mm -hmm. the way I think about it with, with the different hats that I do wear, um, I see them as complementing my development in terms of understanding the game of squash. So if you think about, so obviously I've got my, my England career as, as an England junior national coach working 
up and down the pathway supporting um, David Campion as the national coach. Um, I've got that side of it and I, I love to try and develop um, English players to try and make, you know, make world class or support uh, a world class environment and and what it takes on the, on that side of it. So that's that's one area where I've got my coaching, my private coaching, um, and it's all about trying to to support players to become better, coaches to become better, to develop and evolve their understanding of the game. Um, then I do with the PSA when they approached me about the, the as a as a PSA refereeing director and director of refereeing. Now I'm not a referee, but the way I see it with this is it's one, it's made me have to learn the rules inside out. So I've developed my understanding of the rules um, of the game of squash. So immediately it, it means in my eyes, I'm becoming better on that side. It's, um, it's given me an opportunity to try and make the game better to help um, where I can liaise because my big, the biggest thing is I try and liaise between referees and players and I try and bring the two closer together. And I try and get it done in a way that makes the game more attractive to watch. So it's, it's more flowing with less stoppages as, as much as possible. That's, that's my overall goal. And linked to that is then the development of, we've got the World Squash officiating website coming out soon, which is like a one-stop shop for referees in terms of, or anyone that's interested in the game. Um, in terms of actually doing all the courses, getting the information, having a look at video clips of examples of, of what's going on in the professional game, where we, our interpretation of the rules and how we want the game to flow. So again, it, it gave me an opportunity where I looked at it and went, well, actually, I'm, there's going to be a lot of stick involved in this. And I am, I am a bit of um, a battering ram or, or, or I'm the, the, the sort of board that gets battered sometimes, <laughs> Fair enough. Um, you know, when, when, when it kicks off during a match, but, um, but what it has given me is given me an opportunity to have an influence on the game and the way the game is watched. And it's the game that I love. So if I can, if I can have a, an influence at the very, very highest sort of part of that, then I think that's a great thing. And I was willing to have a go at that. Um, so that's where the the refereeing and the the PSA and the WSO side of it comes into it, mm -hmm. and then the other sides, sort of obviously the commentating. It's it's a bit like a busman's holiday because what it does is it, you know, I, I go I go to these major events. I'm around the very best performers in the game, um, and that's that's whether you're talking about the people that are involved as support networks for the players. Um, other commentators or when you're looking at the the players themselves and this is this whole show and performance and yeah it's about making the game as attractive and as good and and fun to watch as possible but it's also just having access to watching behind the scenes what these players are doing you know how they're how they get themselves ready for matches how they warm up for matches how they they respond um when things have gone wrong and, the, and they have to deal with defeat, um, seeing all the different characters and personalities and their supports, support teams or support networks that they've got. I mean, it's such an incredible insight into That's the great. game. And I, I love that part of it. Yeah, geez. And it sounds like 
you, you're able for, for the character and the nature you are, you, you're like a, like a data collection machine, you know, you're seeing what they're doing and you might filter it through your own mind and then pass it on to the players you're working with, you know, whether it's the warm up or whether it's the self-talk the players give or, or how they bounce back from adversity. And like you said, that, that must be something super motivating for you. And, and do you find yourself doing that? Do you find yourself getting that information, distilling it in your way and trying to put that onto your players you work with? Yeah, so basically what it does do is it gives me a chance to study and to analyse. Mm -hmm. So stuff that maybe I wouldn't have known before or, or stuff I wouldn't have seen. When I'm talking about the game or I'm watching it or I'm t talking to other people about it or, or hearing, it allows me just to go into those little details, the, the sort of subtleties that maybe me as someone who's quite big picture, more about vision and sort of that, that sort of the, the bigger side of it, uh, it helps me just to get into those details a little bit of what it takes for for the very best coaches, the very best um, players, the very best um, you know presenters of the game or whatever. So, so it just allows me to to fashion these ideas nice. that I then incorporate into what I do, or or then incorporate into whether I'm talking about the game, whether I'm I'm coaching the game, um, and then also it, it's very. Um, cutting edge isn't it so the game is where the modern game's at the professional game so that then links me to my sort of junior stuff that I do with 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 the England juniors as well as um, the private juniors that I coach and immediately I'm starting to think right where do these players need to be if they want to be as good as they possibly can be and where is the game going to go in five years time um, where might it be when when they actually get to to that sort of stage of their career. So I'm constantly trying to trying to work that out and think about it and then think slightly outside the box to try and work out um, how I can speed up the process or how I can support the process in a way that still gives them the experiences that you need. And I, I honestly believe that to become great or world-class, you need hardships and you need difficult, difficult phases. Um, but it does give me the ability to try and help them speed up that process. Yeah, um, it's amazing hearing you say that. And, and I can genuinely, whenever we do spend time together, I, I come away looking at things slightly differently or question a few things in a positive way. And yeah, you can, can really feel like you, you, you live your, your passion and, and, and it's just brilliant. But that leads me exactly on to my next question, which is coaching philosophies. You know, we know they mold and change over time. But at the moment, what do you think some of your key components that make up your coaching philosophy? Um, I mean, obviously, you know, you and I shared the journey of the, the high performance award with England squash. And then we had that ability to go on and do our masters, which allowed us to, to again, study the game, to read about it. Um, I mean, I wish I wish I had that that way of thinking when I was when I was younger, for sure. Because I mean, I don't think I actually read read a book properly until I actually started traveling, you know, on, the, you know, touring which was what 18 19 which is ridiculous yeah. <laughs> really but that shows shows the level of my maturity at the time it wasn't very good or high <laughs> you certainly flipped it now though man sure yeah <laughs> yeah make trying to catch up <laughs> but um i think i think the big thing for me is i try and think of, about the game as um the individual so I know it's very personal to individuals that people are different at different points. So it's very much about, about them, what they need, how I can support that and how I can help. It's also about 
um, trying to, to develop a love of learning. So people were searching for the knowledge, searching for answers, looking for a way to improve themselves with me trying to support that. So I don't think I, you know, at school, they didn't teach me a love of learning. They taught me how to try and remember things. And, and then I just didn't bother with that. So whereas if someone had taught me to love learning, I'd have looked for information and I'd have wanted to learn. So that's, that's another big part of it. I think it's also, it's about encouraging people to try and be the best that they can possibly be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm talking about the, the sort of the personality traits of people here, not necessarily my thoughts or coaching philosophy on the game. Um, I think a, a big thing for me is to, to equip people as much as I can with tools that will be successful generally, um, whether they gave up squash tomorrow or whether they, they, they took it into squash. So it's about, you know, developing a work ethic, uh, a, a search for knowledge, the, the different things, the, the being robust in difficult situations, um, which I'm not necessarily good at either. Um, you know, I will take the weight of the world on my shoulders and feel sorry for myself. But um, it's, it's about trying to equip people with those, those things and wanting them to be as good as they can possibly be. Um, and th- and that work ethic that that is required to get to those levels, whether you're a squash player, whether you're a successful business person, or whether you want to be good at, at anything in life, I guess it's that you know there's those common traits, isn't there, between successful people? When you yeah. look at them, you go, there, there's some very similar things there, if not, if not exactly the same. Um, I, I, don't it's, it's, like, I don't necessarily like the title of the book, but the seven habits of effective people. Um, you know, I don't like the word number seven in there, but it, that's what the book's trying to portray. It's trying to say, here's the, the common data points that, you know, very successful people tend to exhibit. So it sounds like, is that, that's what you're saying? Yeah, those, those, those kind of things. And just very much about the individual, about how they, how they want to do it, how they, you know, when they're ready for it and, how they want to perform, um, trying to give those opportunities and to sort of help with that. Mm. I mean, what I do do is, and I've always done this, when I started coaching, I always approached any player in any session with my personality and how I would coach anyone. So, so you know, if I went on with a junior and I was lucky, say I was lucky enough to get on court with, say, James Wilshrop when he's, you know, pushing right at the top of the, the rankings in the world... I would try and approach both of those in a very similar way. Um, I don't know whether that's just my personality and I'm not very adaptable, a bit too serious, but um, that, that's the, the way I would approach it, regardless of whether it was a club player at the time or whether it was a, an elite player. The, all my sessions were very, very similar. Um, but again, it was just because it was about work ethic and it was about trying to get a love for, for knowledge or improving or becoming better. And that's, that, I think that probably underpins what I do a lot. Yeah. Well, no, geez, those, those foundations of your philosophy are, are, are surely things we all got to be looking at as, you know, within ourselves. And then how can we give the examples to our players that, that, yeah, we're hungry for learning. We got that work ethic and how we can transfer on, onto our players. So no, it sounds, sounds pretty spot on. So, right. I'm keen to get down in the weeds with you, you here a little bit and, and really get into some of this nitty gritty. So how do you get your players to try and think for themselves? I think we both agree that that's such a key elements in regard to improvement this this hunger for learning and you maybe mentioned that are there examples or methods that you get your players to try to think for themselves um well i think one of the major shifts was sort of again if i go back to the high performance award that we did 
one of the big things was to ask questions um, rather than provide information. You know, because I sort of, I remember there was a bit of a eureka moment where I was delivering a squad and I was sort of, you know, I'd set it up and I was giving all this information that I knew my experience and what I thought. And I just happened to ask a simple question about something that I thought everyone would understand and know the answer to. And it was just blank faces. There was nothing, there was nothing there. And I was like, wow, I'm rattling on. And all I'm doing is providing you with my knowledge, my understanding. So all of a sudden it's about me, not about you and what you understand, what you need. So asking questions for me is a massive thing. You know, what, what do you think? Um, how would you do that? What did you notice? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what area of your game do you want to work on today? Um, trying to put ownership and responsibility and onus on them to actually start that whole process so that they, you know, they come to a session thinking on their way, what am I going to answer when Lee asks me what we're working on or, or what do I want to do? How do I want to work on it? Do I want to work physically hard or not? So just trying to, to get them to think th- that way, especially in a practical sense. And I'm thinking sort of directly in terms of coaching now, um, mm-hmm. in terms of sort of thinking about the game, it's, you know, if there's match analysis, it's like, you know, I might set a certain aspect that I want to look at and then they come to me with the details that they notice and then I go with what I've noticed and, mm. you know, I pick up quite a lot from from those guys with that sort of thing as well. So yeah. um, that that's the big way, I think, is trying to give a bit of response, responsibility and ownership to mm. the individuals more than just me rattling on about what I know and what my experience is because it's actually irrelevant isn't it because I'm not on a squash court with them and I'm not training with them it's it's they need to do all that yeah you know you totally hit the nail on the head there I think the two things that came out of that but you said is is yes we're maybe the um the, the the guardians of the knowledge maybe that's a bit of a weird way to say it, but we've got the knowledge but it's not our responsibility to just to throw that knowledge on on the players you know yes we need to be able to filter it and, and find ways for them to extract that knowledge that we have you know so i think like you said that eureka moments of you rattling on and the blank faces is really mm-hmm. really big there and then the second thing that comes to mind is this this idea of a the environment you create like like a continually curious and questioning and and, and a learning environment. It sounds like that's something you have cultivated. Can, can you talk a little bit more on that and, and that idea of that environment you're always trying to create with, within your players? Yeah, and I, I sort of remember, I remember initially when I started to do this, there would be a lot of um, awkward, <laughs> awkward silences or just shrugs of the shoulders. Uh, I don't know, or I don't, you know, it, it, was, it was definitely an awkward moment trying to get that crossover. Um, but because they were used to me just providing all the answers. Mm-hmm. But what you do find is the earlier you start this and you actually just start to, to, get, to value, I guess it's just a case of valuing their opinion and valuing their thoughts and, and not just thinking that you have all the answers and that you have this ability that, that you can wrestle it all off. And I think once I'd, I'd found that balance, it became so much, so much easier. And I sort of think about it in my coaching as well when I'm thinking directly about the game. And I like players to have lots of op- options. So I like players to be in a set position and be able to hit the ball 
you know, left, right, front, back, high, low, hard, soft. Mm-hmm. Um, the more options you create and the more options you give when you're practicing stuff, the more they're immediately starting to, to train the brain to be thinking proactively themselves about what they need and what they want um, and how they'll benefit. So um, I try and try and do that off court, talking to them on, on courts, try and do it with, with um, options or them leading. Um, and then just try and, I, I guess you, my job is then just to guide it at certain degrees or certain levels and that's where my judgment call comes in of, right, is that the right direction or the wrong direction? Or do I think that there could be another option? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's about sort of throwing in those little suggestions and letting them lead, but, but doing it in a way where it's not necessarily all you, which is, which is I mean, it's a hard balance because right. I can rattle, I can be, uh, have very strong opinions and be strong-willed about stuff. Um, where I might spike up and and flare up and clash initially, but then once I've had a moment to reflect and think about that, I then regroup and sort of draw it back again and and then come come back in. But uh, I can't, don't, don't. I'm definitely not perfect in this. So um, it's hard. Uh, eh? Look, I, I same yeah. as you. Like there's because because when you get those awkward moments and those shrugs, the instinct is to just fill the gap, isn't it? And I think mm. you've worked hard on it, and I'm, I'm always working hard on it as well. To actually silence is sometimes one of the most beneficial things in coaching. Just let that silence sit, and those little pauses are quite interesting. And it, it makes me reflect on um, something that happened in, in why well, it's not a rule I have, but there's a few certain players I have where you ask them a question and they. Always always come with the I don't know that's the first thing that comes out of their mind I don't mm. know and then they go um and then they think about it so I'm trying to get that idea of well rather than saying I don't know because you're just reinforcing that in your brain actually just pause for a second and then you can maybe come in with it so that's that's one of my little methods at the moment of trying to make sure that the players just don't automatically come with the I don't know because for me it just reinforces it so um, yeah I mean I mean the other just thinking about that the other problem is is we all we all feel great when when we have been able to do something successfully or when we have been able to help or when when it is about us you know it makes us feel special and it makes us feel better so it's you almost have to um, resist instinct not to fill those gaps because you want to speed it up you want to help or or not to make it all about you and and it's you know it's not an easy thing because you do you feel better when you can have a positive impact and you it can be about you but that's exactly it it's like yes you might feel better the player might feel better but is actual learning taking place maybe Mm. maybe not but so a little other thing that i'm trying and and again i've seen you do this as well is that whole concept of let's embrace the struggle it's a little strap line I'm, i'm trying to use a lot now embrace the struggle actually if you're going to struggle and you might come away from that session actually not feeling great about it but you know what have you actually stayed with it and got down in the weeds and in, in the mud a little bit and embraced the struggle and arguably certain points like that more learning takes place than the feel good factor what do you think on that yeah definitely i mean it's it's that whole concept of deep learning isn't it you know when you, when you think about it and it's um it's it's the struggle that that actually is the one that sticks and that remembers. So if you've not had that struggle, mm. you don't really remember it and it doesn't affect change. So, you know, I I quite enjoy it when I've made people's heads sort of blow up and, and, and really sort of frazzle minds in terms of what they're working on and focus and concentrating and thinking about. 
because they go away from it and yeah you feel you feel mentally drained and fatigued if you sort of say to them this is normal you know the very best players in the world unless they are so instinctive and so good and such a maverick where it just they just do it mm-hmm. these best the best players in the world are putting so much focus and attention to detail and purpose onto absolutely everything they do and it is draining and it's something that needs to be practiced mm-hmm. and it's a skill and and um it's when you're getting that headache and and it's sort of like you know a bit overwhelming like you say that's when you're getting the the best work that's when you're getting stuff that's actually going to stick you have to struggle for information mm-hmm. and then you remember it if you haven't had to struggle for it it just sort of i know for me it just goes in one ear and out the other and then i've i've taken nothing from it hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. That's, that's powerful, man. And, and yeah, it sounds like us as coaches, we, we need to keep cultivating that environment, but also set our players up ready to, to handle that environment. You know, yes, I think we know the importance of that struggle, but it's also, you know, us maybe nurturing that struggle and, and, and being a support base around the same time. And this might link me into my next little couple of bits where I wanted to take this conversation, uh, you know, around mental toughness and resilience. So, you know, we're talking about struggle here, but but what signs do you think are exhibited early on with athletes that that have mental toughness? Is, does anything come to mind on, on certain signs that you go, actually, they've got a bit of innate mental toughness in them? Um, I would say um, consistency. So for me, consistency is a massive thing. Um, if you can be consistent day in, day out, keep chipping away, um, all those little habits, those little details, those little things, they accumulate into something massive. You know, and you can do it day in, day out. And all of a sudden, once you've got all those good habits in place, you can look back in, in nine months' time or six months' time and you're, like, you're a completely different player. Mm-hmm. Although you don't feel like a different player or a different person because you're always, you're always wrapped up in where you're at at that precise moment in time. So it's quite hard to measure because you're always seeing flaws and details of where you're at in that given moment. But I think when people are consistent and they're consistently working at stuff, that is such a huge strength in terms of long-term and, and where they're going to get to. And like I said, I wasn't particularly, I don't think I was particularly um, mentally strong or, or resistant. And I don't think I was very consistent with what I did. You know, I'd be going in peaks and troughs and waves and, mm. and that that's the result. You know, you, you get the results from that. And when you see people that are consistent day in, day out, they're just making the most of every single day, every single moment, getting yep. everything that they can out of them. So I think that's one major thing. 
And then the other thing that I would say is, is being able to dust yourself down and bouncing back, mm -hmm. um, you know, to come again. So, so when you see people that, that are defeated, that lose or, or have really difficult moments, you know, whether it's on a squash court or whether it's an injury or whether it's off court and they're having to deal with real challenges, their ability to dust themselves down and use it as a learning tool and then to come back again and keep coming back the next day or the next time and just making little tweaks and little changes the whole time. When you see people doing that, that's mightily impressive because they're coming back from, from hardship, from very difficult situations in their life, but it's shaping them and it's molding them and it's making them stronger. Every time they deal with something like that or cope, mm. they're, they're coming back a, a little bit stronger. Um, and then the other thing, I guess, is sort of your pain threshold and your resilience. When you see people that just won't give up or won't give in or just got that sheer dogged determination um, where they'll just they'll just go and, and be resilient and they'll break or they won't break when most people would. Mm. I mean, that's mm. that's such a big thing as well, because, you know, it's like when you're playing someone that is like that. You, you you go on court before you, you're going on, going, oh, wow, this is going to be brutal. You know, they, they don't give anything up. They'll be there right until the end. This could be two hours of just sheer hell. Um, and and it, again, it's such a strong thing when someone's got that that mental toughness and resilience. Oh, it's, it's, it's such an asset, isn't it? So one or two things come out of that little bit you said there. Love the consistency piece. Uh, and it sounds like you're almost quoting directly and people are probably sick of me saying this. The Atomic Habits, James Clear, that, that book is amazing. And he talks mm. about mastering the art of showing up. That, that's my big takeaway message from that book. And it's it's about the frequency. It's not about the amount you do. So it's, it's you know, you mm. could do 20 minutes every day is better than doing like four hours on a Monday and four hours on a Friday. So I think that's that's a real big piece about consistency and, and and mastering the art of showing up and it probably i was quoting aristotle but aristotle did say something similar but um no uh, james clear yeah I'm with and, you uh, not. i think aristotle's one it was excellent <laughs> the habit so yes yeah, I, it is, yeah. uh, I think james clear is just yeah made it more of the modern version so uh, mm. that's that's the difference there drew boy you go straight <laughs> to the aristotle i'm like yeah some dude on like twitter said something so <laughs> Um, but then it links me exactly to the next bit is, is how as a coach do we foster and nurture mental toughness in this environment you talk about? So if you were to use consistency, bounce back ability and, and going through pain threshold as like our three benchmarks, what, what do you do in, in order to nurture that? Well, it's tough, isn't it? Because it's a tough, tough trait to have. But I think you, um, you have to challenge. So you have to check and challenge. Um, I found... I've found by setting or understanding what someone wants to achieve and the goals that they can then set themselves to achieve what they want to achieve, that is a brilliant benchmark to be able to actually check and challenge. Because if there's habits or behaviours that don't match what they actually want to do in life or on squash or, or just generally, you can actually challenge them directly on that. And you can sort of say, you know, well, it's absolutely fine but what you're doing will not get you to where you want to be. Now you either change your behaviors and David Campion talks about this a lot. You either change your behaviors to be able to achieve your goal and your target, or you just change your target and you can keep the same, same behaviors. Um, so I think being able to challenge things like that to knowing what they want to achieve, how they want to do it. You, that gives you a direct way of going, well, you're not going to do it this way. Um, rethink. 
Um, so I think that's that's a very strong one. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other thing is to actually get used to difficult situations, you know, to set set situations up where you're you're working under pressure, you know, whether that's mentally or psychologically on court, where you, you set up pressure points um, with a consequence, you know, so you could actually start a game at what, I don't know, game ball or something, or, or having to win two clear, but you you're gonna you're gonna have a consequence if you don't win those two points, or every time you get to the game ball, you lose the point, you drop back five points. Setting up challenging situations that test the the psychological sort of um, coping strategies, mm -hmm. um, I think, are really good ways to to get that out and to to throw those consequences in there. Um, and you can, you know, some people will love physical consequences. Other people will hate physical consequences in relation to to being successful or not. And mm -hmm. you have to deal and and work with the personality of the person. Because it's pointless setting up pressure situations and putting a physical consequence on it as part of the challenge if someone absolutely loves the physical side of it because then they won't even see it as a yeah. challenging situation they'll just play so you have to work with the individual and those fronts as well but i think they're really good ways to, to test it and then obviously physically to push boundaries Mm -hmm. it's it's a very easy one because you know it's you just working hard you just put very tough sessions in for people and mm -hmm. that tests that mm -hmm. in terms of bouncing back in consequences I th or consistency even I think it's it's flagging when there is a ha there hasn't been consistency so you can again it's about just challenging on that it's like well you know you need to accumulate stuff so I think as a coach it's your responsibility to sort of talk to people about that um, and to notice when there isn't consistency mm -hmm. and just to say, uh, you know, to make sure it's flagged, to make sure you have the, con the conversations and it's more about conversation rather than telling. Mm -hmm. um, and then in terms of bounce, bouncing back um, and rising up from, from losses or, or challenging situations, I think it's realising, and I, I personally think quite big picture then, because I go, well, look, this is a small drop in the ocean. You know, what seems like the biggest loss in the world at that that moment in time, a year down the line, you won't even remember that match, that that result. And and if you do, you'll realise it's only a very small part of your your entire journey. Um, because it's very easy to um, catastrophize stuff. When you're actually in the moment because it's the most important thing it's the biggest thing but actually if you can step away from that mm -hmm. and i think as a as a coach i just try and play it down slightly you know it's not that big a deal it's it's a small thing you know tomorrow or in a few days you'll be able to look back at it you can learn from it what can you gain from it mm -hmm. how can you become better from it those, those sort of con conversations actually come away from it it's very easily to get emotionally wrapped up as soon as you're really emotionally in there then, then again, I, it's the same with wins. I try not to get overexcited about wins and I try not to get um, too upset with losses. I try and stay a bit more 
you know, middle of the road, I guess. A bit more boring, a bit more vanilla. <laughs> oh, man, Drew, but listen, there's such gold in what you just said there. And anyone listening, I think, wow, you, you know, take loads of notes from that because I think there's some real high benchmarks there. And just on that last point, I think I read that in, in the Bradley Wiggins book, I think. He talked about that idea of staying in that middle ground, you know, don't over-celebrate and put so much emphasis on the highs because you know what? There's there's a cliff face and there's going to be some lows. So, if, you know, as much as you celebrate the high, don't get down in that trough of the low, find that middle mm. ground. Like and you said, I, we laugh about it vanilla but you know what that that you see the top sports men and women in the world are able to almost play emotionless in a way yes you have the nick Kyrgios and that type of side of things and but but you know if you look at the the, the rogers and the nadals over the course of their career they've probably they've stayed a lot more neutral and, and you see that in squash as well don't you so um but yeah listen, i do i do think it's important though that the players express themselves and that um it's their personalities coming out so if you've got a nick Kyrgios personality i mean go with it and embrace it and then just make little tweaks because you don't want to to change their personality and you know so i i see sport as 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 an art form as as an ex, a form of expression of personality and doing it in the way that you want to do it mm-hmm. um so i think you've got to really work with the individuals on that front as well that's that's all i would say mm-hmm. No, great point. Yeah, maybe yeah, probably overemphasizing the whole middle ground a little bit there. But mm. yeah, like you said, as as a coach, I think it's it's great for us to massage the personalities to the surface. And so let, let's change tracks a little bit here. Um, visualizations. I, I believe you're very big into them. The whole point of squash mind is trying to introduce people to visualizations more. Let's have a talk on this and, and how can you encourage your players to work on this aspect of the game that that you know might they might know it's important, but how do we get them to try it as well? Um, well, at first, it always seems a bit weird, doesn't it? So when you first introduce the idea of, of you know, breathing to settle down, to to visualise certain things, when you first practise that, it's a, it's a little bit alien, it's a little bit strange. But I think this sort of, um, this, this time frame or this phase of where we're at right now with um, the pandemic and, and what have you, what, what it has meant is... Some parts of the world, people are able to play. Other parts of the world, people are in lockdown, can't do anything. I think what it means is we need to think clever when it comes to actually performance and how we're going to improve quickly. And the mind is a massive area of it. And I think whenever you watch or listen to successful sports people, quite often they'll, they'll talk about, you know, what they what they'd seen, they'd already seen it in their minds. They've they've already gone, you know, David, was it, um, it was Emery, wasn't it, who was the 400 metre runner who first came through and said that he'd actually visualised himself running the 400 metres from every single lane. Wow. And then when, when the Olympic Games final came and he was drawn in what was perceived as the worst lane, he'd already visualised himself running it and, and winning that race from that lane. So it didn't phase him and it didn't knock him out of his stride, literally. Yeah. And it actually, um, it actually meant that it wasn't a shock to the system. Mm-hmm. And, and it's that whole thing of being able to, to practice and practice something perfectly and get the mind believing that you're, you're in these situations and it can't tell the difference between the reality of practice and and actually visualizing it it's allowing that to take place and and i guess just informing people about it and talking about stories of mm. of successful sports people that have used visualization and the the potential impacts and benefits it can have because 
it can be very calming. It can teach you control um, in certain situations, you know, coping mechanisms for, for pressure situations or when you're emotionally charged, um, you know, it can be a reset. There's so many benefits of it. So to really get people to buy in, I think it's talking about examples of people that have used it successfully. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. I think um, I, I'm trying to present and I just wrote down the, a few notes there, what you just said, because I think there's some powerful stuff there. Presenting athletes experiences is really important. And actually, maybe athletes that players admire and look up to, that makes it more powerful. Presenting, um, you know, lab-based, science-based, journal-based evidence of, of brain scans and what's happening is maybe a more scientific way to do it. And then obviously, you know, maybe getting your players to try it and reflect on it over the course of months and years and go, Hey, this part of the visualization worked. And I like visualizing my technique. Others might like visualizing more of, of a strategy and a game plan as well. And like you said, I think, I think, I think we as coaches and actually players, we know the importance of it, but it's, it's how we presented it to the players that it, it's quite impactful. And actually a part of it might be linked into the, the character traits of, of their players as well. So mm. do you, and this is something I've been thinking about recently when I really get back on court with, with the groups, because the studies I've read are very much, they do it in a classroom environment and then there's an improvement, right? But there seems like a body of evidence starting to rise now where there is, there's, there's almost visualizations in the field and actually during sessions and actually, you know, extracting a player off the court or their field, visualizing and putting them back on. Have you thought about that or do you do any visualizations in the moment? I haven't done um, as of yet. I think uh, if I'm thinking about, you know, as I was listening to you talk there, one of the, one of the players that jumped to mind was say Nicole David, when, when she used to lose a rally you'd quite often immediately straight afterwards see her sort of just mm. visualizing and actually practicing. She'd do it physically, but you could see that she was lost in herself, actually thinking about how she wanted to play the ball. And you saw her in between games. It was very, very obvious that she was sitting there visualizing what she wanted, how she wanted to perform, what she was looking to do. So it makes complete sense to me that if you've got them in the actual environment, where they can become very associated with what they're doing, what they're practicing, mm -hmm. that it would make it better and enhance it. Mm. Um, so, so that makes complete sense. Mm. I haven't done it yet. Uh, maybe it's something that I would look to do. Yeah, um, it does sound really interesting because it, it makes complete sense. Because yes, I think we both are proponents of it and we get our players to do it. But are we doing it more in a classroom formal setting? Whereas how can we take it out of the classroom and put it into the field? And I don't have the answer yet, but, you know, hopefully, you know, we can stimulate each other's thoughts on, on how we can do that as well. I mean, to be to be completely honest, it was something that I found actually helped me a lot because it taught me about breathing. It taught me about resetting after rallies. You know, um, whether that's before a return of serve, but before I serve, um, taught me how to sort of cope with bad decisions in my eyes, you know, when normally I'd flare up and the, the red mist would descend. Um, so, there's, so there's loads of stuff that it helped me with, but I didn't actually use it that much until this last year. And then all of a sudden this last year, it's like, well, what can I do? This is what I can do. And when I started doing it, I was almost a bit, not worried, but I just wondered whether it would have any impact or whether players would find it useful mm -hmm. or whether, you know, it was just too much out of my comfort zone or a bit too odd. Um, but actually the feedback that I get is that, that it has been useful and that it has made a difference and it does allow them to think about the game and to improve and give them some coping, coping mechanisms for 
for when they're playing or, or just generally. Mm, awesome. I, and hopefully, yeah, there's, there's more of this from, from both of us and other coaches and might, might need to be a skill set that we all develop a little bit more and grow because if it, if it if, like you said, at, at the high level, even at the low level, but at the high level, there's the marginal gains, isn't there? You know, the one mm. or 2%. And if this makes the difference between, you know, from, you know, going out at the quarterfinals to reaching a final and, and winning a major event, this could be it. So no, awesome. It's really cool to hear your, your viewpoints on visualization. Um, so I've got a few more little questions as well, because I know I'm, I'm taking a lot of your time and I'm, but I, I think we could go on for another three hours with this. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll be um, we'll be a trilogy. I think. Why? Why not? Like, <laughs> we definitely need to get back on there. But so, how do you motivate your players when you see they are struggling due to working hard? They're doing all the right things, but they're not getting the results to reflect the hard work. What what type of conversations do you have with players? Um, I mean, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because it's such a it's such a difficult time for anyone. When, when you think you're doing the right things, you're plugging away, you're being consistent, you're not, you're not quite getting the results. But I think it's, it's more about what you're doing on, on a court or, or what you're doing day to day and how that actually has an impact on, on you and what you're doing. So I think the more I can look at it as bigger than just a squash match or bigger than just um, a result. And, and it's more about how you're trying to play, um, what you're trying to do, uh, how you're trying to set stuff up, how you're trying to execute shots, um, how you're living your life, doing stuff day to day. As soon as I just try and put more value on that rather than the outcome of the game of squash, because we all need to lose. We all need to win. Um, we can't control what someone else has been doing. You know, if me and you are playing and You've been working unbelievably hard. You've made massive improvements. But before the break, I was beating you. Then we come back and all of a sudden, you've just gone up a load of levels. Mm -hmm. I can't do anything about that. All I can do is dust myself down and go, right, you put me, you know, I was breaking down in these areas. I was struggling here. Now, can I fix this? Can I make it better? And then trying to come back, you know, a few weeks down the line or a few months down the line and then test myself again. Because all those matches really are just tests aren't they just to yeah. see where are you at at that given moment in time and if you can perform at the very best level that you're capable of on that day you can't really do anything else and and you sort of got to got to be content with that and then just you know you're going to be disappointed you're going to be gutted but in the end as long as you know that it's leading in a way that's making you better yeah that you are improving then then that should give you hope yeah totally it, it is it's a hard one eh? because you know and again you believe it even the player might believe it themselves but there's still not that tangible result at the end of it but it sounds like what you're saying there is you 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 soften the importance on 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 the on the outcome you know yes that's also hard and that's that's probably a lot of conversations with the player to go trust and belief and it's going to happen over time and would, would you say that's the way you do it is is the communication with the player and reinforcing those messages yeah i'm i'm massively process over outcome mm. you know get get wrapped up in the process doing what you need to do how you want to do it in a way that's true to yourself mm -hmm. um and in the end, the outcome looks after itself. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, you need to have the right people around you trying to trying to guide you, trying to give you the information that you, the right information, the best information for you. But that's that's the way I look at it for sure. No, awesome. 
So in regards to the mindset of a match, I want to transport there for a little bit. Um, this is a bit of a continuum I've been thinking about. I want to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, we, we look at the one side of the continuum as a player being purely focused on their game plan and their execution. So i.e. fully, you know, internalize and everything's here. And then at the other end of the continuum, the player is observing and adapting their opponents at really looking for all the information, you know, so very external, very, you know, zoomed out. So there's a bit of a gray area, obviously, in the middle. Can we explore this concept and, and what your thoughts are on that? Do, do you do you favor the more, here's your game plan, let's go execute, or do you favor the more, right, I need to zoom out and, and adapt to the situation? Um. I mean, again, it's a fine balance, isn't it? Because you want players to have their super strengths, their identity, how they play, forcing their game onto opponents. But you also want them very adaptable um, in terms of the way they play, the way that they can change game plans if they need to, being in the moment. Because, you know, it's a huge skill to have where you can be a player that doesn't rely on someone else externally to actually tell you what's going on on a squash court. You know, a lot of players will wait till they come off the court, off the court, having lost a game, to be told, "Well, your opponent changed this, and you should have done this, or you needed to do this." Mm. Whereas someone that has the ability to actually be able to feel and adapt um, with what's going on on the court and to be aware is a massive thing. Now, it's such an easy thing to become wrapped up in self and become very wrapped up in you know, I'm doing this, I'm hitting this way, this isn't working, I'm feeling this. And you almost forget completely about, you know, what the opponent's doing. So I honestly believe that you need to be able to, to transition between both because when you're executing your shot, you, you need to know what you've done right or what you've done wrong. So say you hit a tin or make an error or you hit the ball into a sidewall, you need to understand what's caused that so you need to be able to fix it and just just change it for the next time but equally that also should be automated so it should be automatic so the more you practice you're looking for automation which then means that when it actually comes to open play where you you know different opponents will will be hurt or or be more successful in certain areas of the court depending on your response you need to be able to think about that in the moment and you need to be able to have clarity so you've got thinking time so you can have those options naturally. Mm -hmm. But as you're going in, you need to know, am I, am I in control or, or am I under pressure? Um, where's the space on the squash court? What's going to hurt the opponent the most? Um, how, how am I going to play the shot? And you need to have the ability to make those decisions and you need to have the ability to, to be able to see what your opponent's going to do mm. um, and know where they're going to move, where they're going to hit the ball. So you can start to read those little clues. Mm. And you can only do that if you're external and, and actually watching the big picture and then zoom, being able to zoom into little details, coming out, watching it, viewing it big picture, going into yourself to understand what you're doing and then come back out to, to see what the opponent's doing. Mm. And I, I always think about it in terms of, you know, if you're learning to read, uh, initially you're you're putting together you're just learning about the little letters which could be the individual shots you then start to put them together as words which obviously gives you a bit more understanding and in the end it builds where you're sort of going sentences paragraphs and then in the end you just you know it's the whole page and as you zoom out and watch you're reading the whole page and then when you zoom in you're going into the little details and that's sort of the analogy that I always think about yeah. personally.
That's I, I've heard you say that analogy before, and it's bloody brilliant. It's it's such a good one. It it really does get you to think about that that camera lens, and you do use the camera lens a lot when you're coaching. And uh, yeah, massively have have uh, piggyback on that a few times because mm. I, I always credit you. I'm always reference Lee, Lee Drew. That's yeah. his one. But I don't mind. You don't need to. <laughs> um, just I want to stay with this just for a little bit longer because there's a few players that come to mind that I work with. I'm not sure if you have the same, but. They, they, they're so process driven. Great. I'm trying to encourage that. And they, they go through their processes. So when they get on to play, they're very much focused on themselves and their game plan, but that, that isn't working. That's not getting it because they're going, Oh, well, I'm not adapting to the situation. Then they try the other way where it goes, okay, I'm a bit zoomed out. I'm more flexible. I'm more flowing. But then equally so, then they've lost their identity and they're almost, they're almost like in a mist and a fog kind of trying to reach, reach themselves around. And like you said, I think it's a balance, but, but does anyone, not that you'd have to say any names, but does that come to mind where, where, where someone's so process driven, they get focused on their game plan or then someone's so maybe open that they, they don't really ever make any impact because they're so open. What's your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I think it's, Again, it's it's just a very difficult situation because I think I think the main thing is is when you're actually looking at it and you would sort of talk to people, you go, "How do you win your points? You know, where where are you going to win seven or eight points from? You know, and that as long as people can problem solve that and understand that, then then they can work out right. These are my strength areas. This is where I can win my points. Or this is what an opponent's doing. This is where I'm going to win my points. And, you know, I think statistics or analysis shows that you need seven or eight winners per, per game, you know, where you're actually converting opportunities to, to win games because your opponent's not just going to hand you freebies. Mm -hmm. So I would be thinking about that really, because okay. like you say, it's a moving goalpost the whole time. It's one way isn't right. Um, all the time because it changes depending on situation on opponents on the person so it's more about giving an understanding of right what do you do that creates pressure how do you convert those opportunities mm. and and i think it's just about trying to get that clarity i think yeah i yeah. don't know if that answers your question but that's where my mind was going when yeah, you were talking about it well it, it, it gives me more clarity as well because yeah, but, but that, that, that's the beauty of what we do, isn't it? You know, we, we, we continue having to think of these different scenarios and different configurations and go, hey, this character is very much process-driven, game-plan-driven. This character is a little bit more open and free-flowing and likes to flex. But how do we, you know, as coaches, keep creating that environment that, that really hits the sweet spot for, for different players? And, and yeah, I think it's, it's beautiful in that sense. And this might link to this next little bit. Um, what messages do you tell your players to try and cope with, with the pressure of, say, big points or big situations? What, what type of language do you use? And, and what do you try to get into their minds that they can use in those big moments? Um, so, I mean... Again, going back to when I was playing, I found that, that breathing, first of all, was massive for me. And that's where practicing visualization and sort of the, that whole aspect of it was massive because taking a couple of deep breaths, no matter what's happened, just gave me a bit of space to think clearly. And it, it just also helped to reset. So the first thing that I normally think about is is breathing because I think it helps for everyone you know you just take a couple of deep breaths and that gives you a moment to, to sort of control yourself to to calm down in any kind of situation mm -hmm. um, now the other thing that I used to think about a lot was affirmations um, 
you know, it's so easy. And I used to have so many doubts and negative thoughts that would just be jumping in the mind the whole time, which is completely normal. And it's sort of just making people realize that these problems, these challenges, they're completely normal. Everyone experiences them. It's not a strange thing. So I think that's the other thing that works well is normalization with with people. It's like, well, it's going to happen. It's completely normal. Um, but I used to have so many negative thoughts and doubts coming in, and that could be before matches, during matches, um, in between games, whatever. And it would just be about knowing the words that counter that for me. So if I'm saying something and just countering it immediately with something positive or knowing, you know, having a list of words that I know is how I want to play is my identity is what I want to be thinking that works for me. And just every time something opposite to that is creeping in, being able to just counter that. Nice. Um, so as though those two things were, were really big, I think. And that's what I would talk to people about is, is sort of having those, the reset through the breathing Mm-hmm. And then having the um, the, the positive affirmations mm. and thoughts that you can counter when those negative thoughts do creep in at any point um, mm. during the day of a match, in the warm up of a match, or during a match. Mm. No powerful advice. And and on that second point in particular about the affirmations, I think it links to this this idea of of trying to make our athletes better thinkers, better learners, more self aware of themselves. If if they can catch those thoughts coming in, and you know, not necessarily just try block thoughts out because we know that doesn't work and that's a bad thing to do. But actually, when those thoughts come, you're self aware that that's happening. In, in a short space of time, and then you can replace it with something else, or you can normalize it, as you said, whereas, you know, we've all done it, those thoughts come in, and and you know what, it takes the, the break of a game, or we lose five points in a row before we have that clarity in that moment, and I know you're big on stuff, like Eckhart Tolle stuff, and, and mindfulness, and, and and keeping in the now and present, what do you think on, on that idea about, about, you know, being more mindful of our own character, and our, our own self-awareness? Yeah, I think it's huge, I think it's knowing it's knowing the thoughts that creep in that rattle you. Um, because the problem is, is once the thought comes in and you've, you've learned to deal with it in a certain way, the body has already reacted. So it's already taken place where you then suddenly become tense if you haven't dealt with it beforehand. So it's understanding the thoughts. You know, you might have someone that's a number one seed for a tournament. And every time they're number one seed in the tournament, they see it as a huge pressure because everyone around them is expecting them to win. They're the number one seed. They're expecting to win. Um, and they might freeze in that moment. Whereas another person might look at it and go, oh, well, you could look at it and talk to that person about it and say, well, okay, you're number one seed, but what does that mean? You know, how can you look at that and rephrase that and rethink it in a positive sense? You know, you're number one seed. People might want to come and watch you. People are going to look up to you and, and watch how you're doing things. They want to see you play because you're the number one seed in this tournament. Why are you number one seed? Because your performances have resulted in you being where you are. Um, so, you know, it's reframing and rephrasing those, those thoughts, but understanding what happens and un- being honest with yourself mm-hmm. to go, when this happens, this situation or this thought comes or this makes me think like this and makes me act negatively, mm-hmm. it's, it's then knowing them and then changing them and, and rephrasing them slightly because all those, you know, you can, you can take anything, can't you? Stuff that upsets you and rattles you, 
you only have to rethink it in a slightly different way and all of a sudden it can be positive. And I think it's just talking to people about that and just saying, look, just be honest with yourself. What is it that leads to you acting or thinking in a way that isn't helpful that you don't want? And how can you actually think about those things in a positive way that that's going to help you? That is good. Mm, that's, that's awesome to hear you say that. And, and two quick things that come to mind, the power of language and how we speak to ourselves, I think is really important. And also the power of language from others and how we can filter that language and, and, and process it. So that for me is one thing. And second thing, and it's something I've been looking into a lot links to the visualization side, this whole concept of negative visualization and actually, actually visualizing worst case scenarios like that. You visualize yourself freezing in the moment. You visualize all of this pressure coming on, but you put the solution in place and, and you start to take all these negative debilitating things that happen to you in matches and tournaments and actually going, right, let me, let me sit with this for a bit. Let me bring it on board. Let me process it, but put the solution in place. Have you started investigating negative visualizations or going down that route a little bit? Yeah. So if, if I'm sort of doing something on visualization, it would be quite often if say you're practicing an area of the game, it would be about remembering um, or being in a moment where it didn't work at all or or the behaviors that you did or the or the way you dealt with the situation was very negative and it, it didn't result or or help your performance it's almost being back in that time and understanding it and learning from it and then and then finding out what the behaviors were that led to that why they weren't helpful and just getting more of an understanding about it and then once you've done that, you can then discard it. And you can go, right, that's been brilliant. I've learned from that. I can discard it. Now what do I, do I want? So what are the positive um, thoughts or actions in that situation next time that will be helpful? And there might have been some that were helpful, but there might have been a load that were harmful. Mm. It's about reinforcing and taking the useful ones, taking the ones that you want to practice and you want happening, um, being there, seeing yourself, feeling yourself doing that, and then putting it into the future, sometime in the future where you go, right, I'm now in this moment and this is where I'm going to practice it. And I've now got my perfect situation nice. that when this comes up next time, these are the thoughts I'm going to have. This is what I'm going to think. This is what I'm going to feel. This is what I'm going to say. <laughs> It's such, such powerful stuff, isn't it? I think I think we're both on the same page here and, and how mm. again, I'm, I'm so curious how we can keep cultivating this and, and make it impactful in our players. But listen, in closing, it's going to maybe link to something you mentioned at the at the beginning of this this conversation. So linked to your maybe your, your, your commentary and involved with the PSA a bit. So we've seen the sport in general, well, sport in general, evolve tremendously over the past, say, three or four decades. Where do you see the next progressions around the game of squash? Um. I mean, I think it's it's very clear that everything is speeding up. It's it's incredibly fast. It's incredibly powerful. There's um, so much being thrown into the into the front areas of the court. So, I think you need to be comfortable in the front areas of the court. You know, whether that's you getting in there and defending, or whether that's you taking the ball in and attacking. The days of sort of just driving up and down the wall, sparring and settling, they've well and truly gone because. You miss, you miss a target on a drive and you can guarantee that the ball is taken early and fired in somewhere and you're having to deal with those angles. So that's, I think that's going to be a given, you know, on top of the physicality and all those bits, on top of the accuracy, your length base and things like that. I think you're going to need those qualities. 
I think where we've seen the game going ridiculously fast and powerful, I think there's now a, a case for accuracy again, mm. you know, where someone comes along and they just tie you down. They just pin you into areas where they restrict swings. They, re they get the ball fading away from you. They, they tie you up in corners and just don't give you those, those areas to work with. And I think the person that comes along that's comfortable in the front corners, that can play at pace, take the ball early, um, will convert opportunities attacking it in, but is unbelievably accurate and tight. That's the next person that's going to dominate the game. That's the person that's going to take the game to the next level, I think, mm. to operate at that speed and intensity yeah. um, all over the court, but with unbelievable accuracy comes to mind the um yeah I, I think i can't remember the year 2013 2014 i think when james was at his best and rammy was at his best and it was that combination of of ice and fire wasn't it you know it's mm. rammy yeah. combine those two that's that's where it is <laughs> yeah there we go ice and fire the whole perfect but then maybe throw in a bit of paul cole physicality just just for good measure as well just to make mm. sure that 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 the body can sustain and everything like that but i'd just, like to coach that person yeah, any, anyone. I wouldn't have to. You wouldn't have to do much. <laughs> I mean, brilliant, wouldn't? And and maybe like the yeah, again with the thought patterns of maybe a James or a Nick. You know, the mindset of that. That's you know, we could create our perfect person there. But listen, Lee Drew, this has been a, an absolute treat for me. Um, I think we've taken quite a deep dive into a lot of areas. I think I think there's there's a whole bunch more stuff we probably even haven't touched on. There's probably a bunch of stuff you want to say at some point. But hope you've enjoyed the chat and hope you've found it interesting and, and thought provoking at the same time. Um, I found it really interesting. Thanks, Jesse. Um, hopefully it's not bored people too much. But for me, it's been it's been great because it just gets me thinking about things. And it's good to talk to you because, you know, you've got such an insight into all of this. So um, thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure, man. And listen, I think that it gives us a great excuse to do one in the future. But listen, have a great day and we'll... <laughs> yeah, do you, are you agreeing now? Or are you like... No, well, no I, I'm, definitely, I'm definitely happy to. I was just thinking whether people could handle it again. Listen, we'll throw it out there and see what happens. Eh? But listen, have a good one, Lee. Good seeing you, man. Yeah, thank you. Presence. Process. Persistence. The essence of Squash Mind. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. 
Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.